Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. Well, the programming goes on uh, as normal this morning. Uh, we'll have Money for Nothing and Back Chat coming up later. Uh, we'll also keep you up to date on the progress of the storm. The number eight signal is up. And as you've been hearing, uh, if you've been listening to the radio this morning, we are at least at this point expecting that perhaps uh, that signal number eight will be coming down between 10 and 12. That means that most of Hong Kong will re-engage for the afternoon. So we'll have to play it by ear. And you should, too, keep your right here on Radio 3. Well, let's take a look at some of these business stories, and uh, if there's any news on the typhoon, I'll certainly interrupt and uh, bring it to you. Alibaba raises its IPO pricing. Internet shares tumbled pretty sharply overnight. Commodities bounced a little after dropping to a new five-year low. And the U.S. Treasury Secretary reportedly urged uh, China to change its anti-monopoly law. We'll have more on that in a minute. In addition, we'll look ahead to today's Fed meeting and we'll ponder Ronnie Chan's potential donation to the University of Southern California, USC, in Los Angeles. We don't know how much, but apparently he is there and will make a large donation. There were also several key mergers to tell you about. We'll hold that for the moment. And first... A few audio musings. Certainly is a tight range, 66 to 68. The purpose of increasing it at all is just to give investors a sense of where this thing could price. That's Leslie Picker from Bloomberg, and you probably figured it out. She's talking there about Alibaba. Still, she says that's a relatively conservative price as the story goes. The whole idea behind this price range was to set it conservatively. They've learned the lessons from Facebook not to be too aggressive on price because it's a big deal um, and a big publicity problem if something goes wrong here. So they have to make sure that they can guarantee that first day pop and pricing it conservatively is pretty much the best way to do that. We'll hear a bit more later from Leslie Picker at Bloomberg and the prime minister in one last call. It would be the end of a country that launched the Enlightenment, that abolished slavery, that drove the Industrial Revolution, that defeated fascism. The end of a country that people around the world respect and admire. The end of a country that all of us call home. Well, stay with us. The Prime Minister David Cameron there. I'll do something a little unusual for us here on this program, and that is to play a rather long clip, a a long excerpt of his speech later. I'll play a couple of minutes from a rather passionate appeal by David Cameron. Our guests on the program this morning include Nicholas Smith of CLSA on QE and whether it will fight off deflation in Japan. Professor Henrik Christiansen, we hope, will be joining us for a segment on the rise of the machine we looking at robotics, um, but of course the storm has intervened a little. And Andrew Sullivan of Banco Espirito Santo will be joining us uh, throughout the half hour on markets. First, uh, let's look at markets here in Asia. The Nikkei is down 52 points at 15,896 in uh, the first five, six minutes of trading. Australia is higher. The ASX 200 up three points. And we also have a three-point rally in Seoul as well. But that is about uh, two-tenths of 1% uh, up. And as I mentioned in my headline package there, commodities uh, peaked a little bit or perked up a little bit after dropping to a a new five-year low. Oil prices, Brent crude 97.88 and gold at $1,232.40. 
On to the top story in at least business and finance, Alibaba raising the amount that it's seeking in its initial public offering. It will now try to raise $21.8 billion. The company will offer shares for 66 to $68 apiece. More now from Bloomberg's Leslie Picker. Certainly is a tight range, 66 to 68. The purpose of increasing it at all is just to give investors a sense of where this thing could price. And, of course, 68 is considered lucky in, in uh, <laughs> Chinese culture, so yes. we're sticking with that theme. But um, it's we're looking at a market valuation at this price at about 160. billion up from $163 billion before. So not too much of an increase in valuation, and it doesn't appear to be something that would really scare off investors that were purely looking at this thing as a valuation play. And even at the higher price, it's below others in the space. It's still lower than what their peers are trading at. This puts them at about uh, $29 on a price-to-forward earnings basis, uh, which is still lower than a lot of their Chinese peers. So it hasn't moved up that much on a valuation basis. That said, there are certainly investors who were looking at the high end of the range thinking, that's too high for me. I'm not in here. A lot of investors I spoke with were valuing this thing at about 80 to $90 a share uh, for 12 months. And they may look at this and say, hey, you know what? 10% upside, not worth the risk. Alibaba founder Jack Ma reportedly told investors in Hong Kong that he won't seek too high a valuation. Meantime, Internet stocks and small caps fell more than 1% overnight. Tesla was down 9% after a Morgan Stanley analyst said that gains in the shares may slow. Well, let's go uh, to Troy Gajewski uh, from uh, from one of the uh, houses on Wall Street. He's among others calling again for a correction on Wall Street. The probability of correction is much higher now that quantitative easing's over, and the Fed is going to embark upon well, not quite a, a over rate yet. hike. Yeah, well, it's it's just about over, and you know, at the end of October, oh, fifteen billion left. Yeah, fifteen billion going to zero. So uh, we're not saying there's no law that says you have to have a correction. We're just saying now is the time where it makes sense to have well, one. What what probability are we talking here? We're probably talking around sixty percent the next six months, right? Whereas during quantitative easing, as you guys recall, we said the probability of correction was extremely low. Extremely low. Um, He says uh, that probability was low if QE was on, but now not so much. Uh, And by the way, that's Troy Gajewski from uh, Knightbridge Capital. Well, Facebook and Twitter were down three and a half percent. All 41 stocks in the Dow Jones Internet Index were down. Mr. Gajewski says it's impossible to know the timing of any correction. You, you can't, no one can time a correction perfectly, no one can call it perfectly. We just think the probabilities are much higher now. And again, if the S&P was trading at a 13 multiple, if the VIX was at 25 and high yield credit spreads were six, 700 over, then it, the probability would be much lower. But to our point, people aren't getting paid a lot to take risk now because every asset class looks relatively expensive to us. Skybridge Capital is where Mr. Gajewski works. The Nasdaq down 1.1% at 45.18. The Dow Jones Industrial Average was actually higher for the day, gaining 0.3%. The S&P 500 was almost flat, slipping a little, but uh, less than 0.1%. Back to Mr. Gajewski. He was at pains to say, even though he was calling for a correction, he's still long this market. 
Let's be clear, we're not bears, we're still directionally long. We just have a lot less risk on now than we did coming into the year and through April. So we would agree with those points that over the longer period of time, if you don't care about volatility, you don't care about risk, equities are still the best asset class to be. And there's no doubt that corporate America is still lean and mean. The economy is transitioning to slightly higher uh, growth rates than it was recently. And the question is how much should you get paid to take that risk? And we think right now is a time to be a little more conservative a little more conservative than, say, six months ago, he says. We've got Andrew Sullivan uh, at Banco Espirito Santo on the line, but we can make him wait another couple of seconds here. I mean, he eats up. He doesn't have anything to do anyway. So we'll just uh, come to Andrew in just a moment. Commodities rose a little bit after touching the lowest level in more than in five years. The Bloomberg Commodity Index dropped 0.4% to a level that it hadn't seen since July of 2009. It then rebounded slightly. And Brent crude fell to the lowest in more than two years. Corn and soybeans traded near lows not seen since 2010. Again, uh, oil price is 97.88. The dollar yen 107.16. So the dollar is still pretty strong against the yen. The euro at 1.2938 U.S. dollars. Good morning now to Andrew Sullivan at Banco Espirito Santo. Andrew, good morning. Good morning, Brian. Yeah, just having some fun. I mean, even if you're, even if the eight's up and you're not on your way to work, you're still working, aren't you? That's it. We're still here. I mean, the rest of the region <laughs> is still open, so uh, there's always business to be done. Absolutely. Well, what, what sort of business uh, catches your eye this morning? Well, I mean, I think you know, the, the two main things that people are looking at currently is, is probably the Japanese yen and that, the implications for Japan generally. But also, as you were saying earlier, the Alibaba uh, IPO is, has got everybody's attention. Um, after that, I mean, people will be looking forward. We have the, the U.S. FOMC meeting starting today, so that's going to be a key one for people. And then tomorrow, the Scottish referendum, which has obviously had a huge impact on uh, what's happening in Europe. It's really quite an amazing week, if you think about it. Uh, all those things you mentioned, and also um, supposedly the Apple um, iPhones uh, uh, starting delivery as of uh, Friday. So that's also this week. And apparently the uh, response has been um, fairly uh, strong for those iPhones. So let's pick apart a couple of these things. Uh, let's go to Scottish independence. Is that something that would weigh on markets here at all? Well, I think in so much as actually we've seen money coming out of the UK as people wait to watch to see what happens with that referendum. Obviously, it's had an impact on the pound uh, and people are looking for alternative safe havens, really. So there's probably been a little bit of extra flow. But I mean, Hong Kong's been suffering, obviously, with this pullback that we've seen over the last couple of days uh, as the China growth slows. Yes, um, and we'll be talking a little bit about Japan uh, in a few minutes with Nicholas Smith uh, from CLSA. He's their Japan strategist, so we don't need to spend too much time uh, talking about about that. Um, but uh, just again to say that the dollar is trading at 107.16 yen, and you mentioned the pound. The pound is now 12 Hong Kong dollars and 57 cents. Uh, does this volatility in currencies uh, continue? Well, yeah, and I think it, it's, it's going to continue because people are wary about what the Fed is going to do. And I mean, OK, we're only at this stage talking about the changing in the wording. But obviously, a lot of houses have already brought forth their or forward their expectations when rates are going to rise to you know, maybe as early as June next year. Uh, and that's already having an impact on investor thinking. Yes. Yeah, so uh, in your mind, do uh, you think uh, investors should should kind of be prepared for rates to start moving sometime around the middle of next year, even if uh, quantitative easing finishes up in uh, in October? And even if there's, um, you know, um, quite a lot of aggressive talk on the Fed, it probably doesn't happen until the middle of next year. 
and uh, you know, I think they're, they're very much aware of not wishing to stifle the growth. The growth really that we're seeing is is, is patchy. Uh, it's good growth, but it's patchy. Uh, and they won't want to stifle the growth. They won't want to, you know, tighten too early uh, and put people off. But, you know, at the same time, they don't want to have the situation where they keep rates so low that they, uh, you know, they see the economy running away almost on a false start. Isn't that the case then, since we know that they are uh, in default position conservative, that if they actually start talking about moving uh, interest rate hikes up a little bit, that the market may interpret that as a positive because they know that this uh, Fed is ultra conservative. And if it feels confident like that, wow, the economy must really be improving. Well, I think I mean, I think it's back to this situation where you know, the U.S. is a very large you know, continent uh, and different parts of that uh, economy move faster than others. You know, it, it comes down to regions um, more than the general economy. So whilst you might see you know, good growth happening on the East Coast or the West Coast, you might still have you know, a very uh, poor situation in places like Detroit, which has to restructure you know, its whole infrastructure and its whole business thought. So this is the problem that the Fed has, is the fact that it's really trying to you know, set policy for you know, a huge range of different circumstances across the whole country. Because the main thing that investors would want to know is um, once we know that interest rates are going to go up, is that a good story or a bad story for your investments? Uh, you can't always tell. Sometimes when rates go up, if it happens kind of slowly, then markets do quite well. Other times, like back in 94, you know, it can really cause a, a, a serious dislocation. Well, that's true. And I mean, I think you, you, you're already seeing, certainly from the U.S. at the end of last week, that, you know, people who currently have uh, favored, you know, good dividend yield stocks, which have done well uh, relative to how much you'd get for your money in the bank, uh, are, are possibly starting to take profit on those uh, and considering their other options. Uh, and that's going to continue. You know, we're seeing, you know, interest rate sensitive stocks, you know, starting to see people wary of, of further investment there and looking at other alternatives. But at the end of the day, I mean, the, the nice thing about the stock market is that there is a whole range of different companies there that suit different circumstances, and it's just a matter of doing the research. Yeah, you don't have to buy the index. You can buy individual stories. Uh, as you mentioned, a lot of the high flyers have been sold down here of late. Um, obviously, some people would speculate that some people are selling to make some money available for the Alibaba listing, which you also reference as one of the important items. Uh, is that the case, or is there plenty of money on the sidelines anyway? Well, I, I certainly think that, you know, certainly for the larger funds, they're probably not allocating new money to their tech sector. And, and hence, yes, PMs have got to sell something in order to raise cash for the Alibaba. And there will be other people that, you know, like the deal. I mean, it, it's priced relatively conservatively. The likelihood is that it's going to go into a lot of indexes in the very near future. Uh, and so the downside risk is probably quite limited. And, and, you know, people will also look at this and, you know, compare it with Facebook. But, you know, here we have a company that has good cash flow, has a good business model, and it's looking to expand. So, you know, a lot of people are looking at this as saying that the downside is limited. Um, it's a good company. It has potential. You know, I should be involved. Okay, Andrew, I'll let you go. Thanks very much for being with us on a typhoon uh, holiday of sorts. Uh, you probably all be working this afternoon, so not a complete holiday, but uh, at least this morning. Andrew Sullivan there from Banco Espirito Santo. Well, Japan's economy suffered a major body blow from the April sales tax increase. As you know, uh, the latest GDP print was not good. Uh, there was uh, a number of minus 7.1%. So to find out a little bit more about Japan, what's happening there, the effect 
effective QE and possible impacts on us. We're joined by Nicholas Smith, the Japan strategist CLSA. And Mr. Smith, good morning. Good morning, Keith. Yeah, it's great to have you on. I remember from the last time you're a pretty good talker, so I'll just tee you up and then you can run with it. <laughs> no, just joking. I'll ask you lots of questions, too. First of all, it doesn't seem like any of the officials are really pushing for more QE at the moment. Can we expect in October uh, anything on that? Well, you know, the, the trouble with the QE at the moment is that there is just a, a limit to what the, um, the central bank can buy. So you found the central bank recently actually buying bonds at negative interest rates just to keep the, uh, the QE going. And the trouble is there's one great big block of money that they could be buying, uh, but it's locked up at the moment, and that's the, uh, the government pension fund. So along with it, all its sidekick uh, and, and satellite um, companies, basically there's $2 trillion in that thing, and it is absolutely packed to the rafters with, with government bonds. Uh, and you can imagine that's really dangerous. When I started in this industry, the, uh, the long bond was eight and a quarter percent. Now it's only half a percent. I mean, if that's not a bubble, I don't know what is, but it's a pretty dangerous ticking time bomb, so they need to get out. But also, they need to start to sell from that thing so that the, uh, the Bank of Japan has something to buy. Is I it, think we'll have a move on that within the, next, um, within the next month or so. Could it also be considered a problem that the more QE probably means the weaker the yen, and the weaker the yen, the more expensive energy costs? And since you're not pumping out nuclear power, that hurts. Yeah, I mean, apart from the fact that you're missing one thing, is that um, amazingly, the oil price keeps on going down. So, despite the fact that the uh, the yen's weakening, the uh, the oil price has been um, been falling even faster. Well, yeah, I mean, I think um, energy together makes about eight um, percent of the CPI basket. And where we're really being hit is in uh, electric power; it's about three point one percent of it, um, and they're not passing all the the costs of um, uh, switching from nuclear to uh, to fossil fuels um, uh, production at the moment. So the, it certainly doesn't help um, in that particular area. If the economy as a whole, particularly for listed companies, and let's face it, that's what we invest in, um, the, the weak yen has been somewhat positive. I, I think we're probably going to sag um, over the next short while to about 110. It's not impossible with the nuke still off that, um, that we could sag all the way down to, uh, to 120. But yeah. let's face it, that's where we were in, um, in 2007, and we weren't ringing our hands about it. You're being kind saying I missed one thing. Uh, I normally miss a lot more than that. Um, um, so uh, thank you for that. Uh, but but on uh, on the nukes, um, you know, that is obviously a very almost existential question now for uh, Japan. Um, what is the prognosis there? What's the likelihood that we'll get, um, you know, more nuclear power sometime in the next year? Yeah, that is moving incredibly slowly. Um, the, the problem is that we had a, a government in Japan for three and a half years, the, uh, the DPJ, that was uh, against nuclear power full stop. And they tried to put in place a, a system so that the, the approval process for uh, switching back on again would be almost impossible. So I think there's, there's 50,000 pages of approvals that you've got to get through to switch a, a, a nuke on. Um, they're finding particularly the um, geological assessments are taking a lot of time. And you can understand that. Um, academics, the one thing in the world they want is a, uh, a problem that's very difficult to solve and actually requires more funding. So uh, that has really held things up. It is not the opposition. It's the scientists that are holding things up at the moment. Okay, so that's a very key uh, question. Uh, um, perhaps the really big picture question is, is deflation ending in Japan? 
Oh, my goodness. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, obviously, the, the problem for the whole of Japan uh, after this unbelievable bubble that um, the decline in real estate and, and equity was in the end 395% of GDP. It was one hell of a hit. Uh, the, the recent U.S. Uh, uh, hit from uh, global financial crisis was about 76%. I mean, that's not a real problem. That what Japan had was, was on a completely different scale. And everything, all lending in Japan is on the back of, um, uh, back of asset prices. So getting those up, uh, asset price inflation is far more important than consumer price inflation. But yeah, we've got that, um, that back. And it's not just uh, voodoo um, economics of QE that's uh, working here now. It's predominantly tight supply and demand. The labor market is eye-wateringly tight. The uh, spare capacity in, um, in production uh, has been taken out now. So uh, prices are moving up for the good old-fashioned reason that uh, supply and demand is tight. It's not because the, the central bank's been, been printing so much. Okay, Mr. Smith, I've just been told uh, I'm squeezed a little bit on the time with the next guest uh, coming up. So uh, I'll have to say goodbye, but a great pleasure having you here on Money for Nothing. Nicholas Smith, the Japan strategist at CLSA. Yeah, there'll be lots of red wine drank after tomorrow here on uh, the host of Money for Nothing. The time now is 24 minutes uh, after 8 o'clock. And we're joined now by Professor Henrik Christiansen, Director of Robotics at Georgia Tech University. Uh, Take a look at the robot industry on Money for Nothing. Professor, good morning. Yes, uh, great, great to have you with us. Um, we're obviously watching this industry very closely. Uh, it's one of these things that we've been hearing about for probably 30 years or so, but it does seem to be cutting into jobs. Uh, and are we anywhere near an inflection point in your view? Well, so, so I think the, the industry sort of continues to grow, and we're certainly seeing um, tremendous growth, in particular in southeastern Asia right now, where we saw an increase of 50% more robots sold uh, last year. Is it, costing, is it cutting into jobs? Sure it is. Uh, if we sort of look at we're, uh, we're typically taking away or replacing jobs that I would call the dirty, dull, and the dangerous jobs. So, so menial tasks, very repetitive tasks, tasks that are physically too demanding for people. And we are replacing those with jobs of operating, maintaining, and all of this. For the robots, so we are replacing unskilled jobs by skilled jobs. Yes, and, and uh, even those people who hang on to jobs, possibly uh, it increases the downward pressure on their wages? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so, so there's no doubt, you know, we, we're seeing these low-wage, minimum-wage uh, jobs going away, getting replaced, <clears throat> simply because... Um, you know, it's possible to either do it at higher speed or at higher quality. Uh, so, so, so it's true. If, if you're in a situation where you have no education and you're on the job market, you might be challenged. My, my colleague Chris Oliver is with me in our studios as well. Chris. Okay. Yes, uh, Dr. Christensen, uh, you mentioned that there's a trend or new trends that are being seen in the robotics industry. One of them is the coll- collaborative relationship between human beings and machines. Can you just explain what that trend is? Sure. So, so traditionally, we've seen robots that's basically been behind a fence doing a, a very particular task, isolated, 
from other <clears throat> from humans on the line. We're right now seeing a, a new family of robots that are coming out that are collaborative robots that can work directly with humans to solve tasks. So as an example, we've used it in a car factory where there's some heavy lifting needed and it's not good for people because it would actually ruin their elbows and their shoulders. We can now have the heavy lifting done by the robot while the human continues to do the same thing. So we're seeing an entire generation of these where you use the robots for heavy lifting, high precision, and we still utilize the people to do high complexity, something that requires a significant degree of intelligence. So it's a way of sort of having the blending where we use the best of the humans and the best of the robots to, to provide an overall process that, that makes the most sense. So 10 or 20 years down the road, are we just all sitting on the couch and uh, pushing uh, a remote? I, I don't think so. I, so, so I think it's more, if, if you go back, and traditionally you've seen that there are jobs that have been replaced. So if I go back 100 years, we laid off a lot of blacksmiths when we introduced the assembly line, and we introduced an entirely new category of people, assembly line workers that build a car industry, that build an electronics industry. So it's merely an evolution. We are taking away some some jobs, and we are replacing them by a new set of jobs. Yeah, well, we... Um we we know that's the mantra, but uh, you know, tell that to all these people who've been laid off in the past uh, five or ten years and can't get retrained fast enough to do to work in the knowledge industry. Well, so, so that's not that's not what we've seen. So so if you go back and see that, we've actually seen that it's creating a significant number of, of new jobs. So, so so I think it's a uh, you you will see that there there are lots of new jobs that are that are getting created. It is true, it's going from unskilled to skilled labor. But so far, if you go and look at, if you look at uh, a number of the places where you've introduced a significant amount of automation, you've seen economic prosperity coming out of it. Okay, Professor, we know you have to run. We'll let you go. Thank you. Okay, thank Professor, you. Professor Henrik Christiansen, Director of Robotics at Georgia Tech University. Well, the leaders of Britain's three main political parties have signed a pledge to devolve more powers to Scotland if Scots reject independence. Here's a lengthy excerpt of a speech by David Cameron in Aberdeen. On Thursday, Scotland votes and the future of our country is at stake. On Friday, people could be living in a different country with a different place in the world and a different future ahead of it. This is a decision that could break up our family of nations and rip Scotland from the rest of the United Kingdom. And we must be very clear, there is no going back from this, no rerun. This is a once and for all decision. If Scotland votes yes, the UK will split and we will go our separate ways forever. When people vote on Thursday, they're not just voting for themselves, but for their children and grandchildren and the generations beyond. So I want to speak very directly to the people of this country today about what is at stake. I believe I speak for millions of people across England, Wales and Northern Ireland, and many in Scotland too who would be utterly heartbroken by the breakup of our United Kingdom. Utterly heartbroken to wake up on Friday morning to the end of the country we love. To know that Scots would no longer join with the English, Welsh and Northern Irish in our Army, Navy and Air Force, or in our UK-wide celebrations and commemorations, or in our UK sporting teams from the Olympics to the British Lions, 
the United Kingdom would be no more. No UK pensions, no UK passports, no UK pound. The greatest example of democracy the world has ever known, of openness, of people of different nationalities and faiths coming together as one, would be no more. It would be the end of a country that launched the Enlightenment, that abolished slavery, that drove the Industrial Revolution, that defeated fascism. The end of a country that people around the world respect and admire. The end of a country that all of us call home. Prime Minister David Cameron, of course, the vote coming up in Scotland on Thursday. This is Money for Nothing at 8.30. Just briefly in the weather, because we'll get more with Sam in the news. Gale force east to southeasterly winds, occasionally storm force offshore and the high ground. The winds will moderate later today, and we'll still watch him when that 8 comes down. The news coming up next. News with Samantha Butler. The number eight storm signal is in force as Typhoon Kalmegi moves away from Hong Kong towards the north of Hainan Island. According to the present track, the storm will make landfall near Lejo Peninsula or Hainan Island around 10 or 11 o'clock this morning and move further away from Hong Kong. The observatory says it will consider issuing the strong wind signal number three between 10 a.m. and 12 noon. Here's a senior scientific officer of the observatory, Lee Shukming. 